2: The Book of Joe podcast
3: is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey there, welcome back to the latest edition of the Book of Joe podcast. With me, Tom Berducci, and of course, Joe Madden. And Joe, before I, before we get to our special guest this week, um, I still have to ask you about your experience playing in the Celebrity Pro-Am at the PGA Valspar event. In fact, I think that's where you ran into our guests. But you got to tell me what it was like standing on the first tee, playing in front of a gallery of, I don't care if it's five people. That's (laughs) pressure.
4: Well, uh, first of all, we started the day before at Old Memorial, and our group won that particular segment. I was with uh, Goose Gossage. And even though Goose walks on the side of his foot, this guy hits the golf ball really well. And then there was, uh, we were a six some, and the other guys were Green Berets and Navy Seals. We had a great time. The next day, Monday, we go to Valspar and I'm playing with Ben Griffin and a, and a couple other dudes. And uh, yeah, you're right. First tee, we get up there. I get no warm ups because they couldn't find me a caddy. So I'm hanging out, hanging out. Then we get up to the first tee. They said, Mr. Madden, you hit first. So I did. And I did. I, I did split the fairway. I <laughs> uh, started out slowly, but eventually on number 14 uh, from 85 yards, put in. 54 degree wedge right in and I birdied from 54 yards out 84 yards out that was kind of cool experience was great uh Ben was wonderful um it was it's all of that and the golf course is tough just like that you saw on tv though they, they were only like 10 under par or something for four days but it was a great experience for me it really was
3: well that's awesome and, and am I right did you run into the great umpire Phil Cuzzy there
4: not there. It was actually, uh, I was over at, uh, Isla de Sol, the other golf course in, uh, St. Pete there. And that was with Michael Stewart, my partner from Ava. And I'm standing there all of a sudden, turn around, Phil walks up. We both see each other simultaneously, gave him a big hug. And then, uh, we, I just started talking about different things. And I mentioned that we have a podcast. He said, be happy to do it. I said, damn, that's perfect. So that's when I texted you right after that. And here we are today. So it was, uh, Phil was actually playing that day and I, he would run the, on the driving range, and that's how this all happened today.
3: Well, let's welcome in Phil, Phil Cuzzy. Please. I, I, if, I, if I did the math right, Phil, I think this is what, year number 28 for you as a major league umpire?
5: Yeah, well, uh, 25 under contract, yeah, but uh, going up and down for a couple of years. But don't ask me where the time went. But <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's crazy. Blink your eye, and here we are. I thought it'd be great as well to have you on, Phil,
3: because you're not just a, a great umpire and a great storyteller, but my goodness, the changes that umpires are going to go through this year, you're getting a little bit of a taste of it here in spring training without the new rules, with especially in regards to the pitch clock. The arbiters of the game, to me, have more responsibility than they've ever had before, Phil. So give me umpires perspective on what spring training has been like so
5: far. Spring training this year, you know, usually we come down and it's it's to shake the rust off. But this has been a complete learning experience because with all the changes and uh, you know, I, I was I was driving to a game the other day and I happened to flip on radio uh, MLB uh, uh, network radio and I, I don't know who the who the guys were. They were obviously two uh, former players, and the first thing I heard them say was are we putting too much on the umpires But with all that they have to do? And, uh, I said, okay, we're, we're finally getting a little bit of support people understanding, but it's been, um, I, I, I can't say it's as crazy as what I thought it was going to be because, you know, when we had our meetings, uh, our annual meetings in Phoenix, then we've had a couple of, 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 of follow-up phone calls. We have another one tonight as a matter of fact, um, it it sounds all so confusing and and so detailed and and complicated, but of course it's like anything else. Once you actually get on the field and start doing it, then you say, okay, now it it kind of all makes sense, but it is a lot. But, uh, the early return, at least for me is it's, it's worth it because the pace of the game has been beautiful, magnificent. And, uh, having said that the game I had yesterday, uh, phillies and baltimore it was a 320 game time so uh but the, the way i look at it is if there was no clock it probably would have been over four hours but <laughs> my, my first two plate jobs down here uh, my game times were 206 and 208 so that's uh something that we're really not used to so it is worth the extra the extra uh work involved
4: my first question was going to be kind of along those lines I mean how long is the adjustment period to become comfortable with all this you're kind of answering it right now but I felt the same way I mean and I've talked to you guys actually on the field with the different rule changes that have arrived over the last couple of years how long does it take to be comfortable uh, with the new rules because you have so many other things to monitor during the course of the game especially like behind the plate balls and strikes of course keeping track of what's going on and then we keep layering new things on you and I know you guys could de- handle it but when, how long do you think it takes you to actually become comfortable out there? It's like, you know, when you're a player uh, or a manager in the dugout, uh, sometimes you add new wrinkles to what you're thinking about. New information comes into the dugout. You're trying to track and follow other things. And you have to develop a rhythm for the day. I, that's how I feel. So how long do you think it takes you to really develop that rhythm to stay on top of all these new additions?
5: Well, I'll tell you, you know, my first game down here, I happen to have the plate. Okay. So, it was that that was very uncomfortable because I found myself it, it was in Tampa and uh, I found myself looking at the clock uh, that was, you know, over the pitcher's shoulder in in uh, right center field. And I, I just I, I just found myself staring at the clock saying, OK, all right, the batter's in the box. You know, I, I think about the magic numbers, right? Like mm-hmm. nine, eight. The, the hitter has to be ready at nine and the catcher has to be ready by eight. And I found myself just looking at the clock and, and I'm saying, oh, oh I, you know, I, guess, I guess I have to call the pitch too. But it was, uh, you know, so I, I, I kind of wish that my first game I would have been on the bases so I could have observed. But right. somebody's got to work the plate first, I guess. And uh, but my second plate job, I did feel much more comfortable. Cool. And then my third plate job, I, I felt even more comfortable. So it's just going to be a matter of time. And I think that goes for the players as well. You know, I'm always asking, asking the players as well, you know, how, how's the timing going? And he said, well, if, you know, they usually say the same thing, basically. At, at first it was a little bit, but, you know, now we're kind of getting used to it. So yeah. I think, you know, as time goes on and the season goes on, um, you know, I think it's going to be uh, – everyone has, is, is going to adjust to it. I think most have already. And um, like I say, I, it, it's going to be worth the, uh, the extra effort.
4: I, I agree with that. It's just the, the rhythm of the whole thing and the fact that your concentration is split. But like you're saying, I agree. I can understand exactly what you're saying as uh, more often that you do it, then you're going to develop a rhythm to you know seeing the clock, calling your game, seeing the clock, calling your game, having your conversation with the catcher, the things that you normally do. Uh, but that's what people don't understand. I mean, there is, there's an adjustment period to all this. It just doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. You guys already are inundated with a lot of new things over the last several years. So I was just curious about that. You kind of, you definitely answered the, the question and uh, becoming comfortable is one thing and then becoming confident is another thing that you actually get confident in yourself so that it becomes like this. It's not like you have to think about it. It just happens.
5: Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, w- w- with time and like anything else, you know, any time there's been uh, new rule changes, it, it always kind of falls on us. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the players adjust to it, but until they really do, Uh, it it falls on us, you know, the slide rule, slide rule at home plate, the slide rule at second base. Uh, You know, I mean, we've had ejections early on when, when, when these changes occur, but um, you know, it's just, you know, again, my, my first plate job, you know, usually here's the first, first time I'm stepping on the field this year and I've been around. So I I know a lot of the, the, the veteran guys, I was afraid to even have conversation with them as they come to the plate because I'm saying, I don't want them to blame me for not being ready, you know, to hit when the clock hits uh, nine seconds, eight seconds, you know. Yeah. So it's an adjustment. But um, the more we do it, I I think, uh, you know, and again, even, you know, it's going fine now. And I think there'll be a little adjustment as well when we when we go for for real start of the season. But again, uh, more that everyone does it, the more that everyone will feel comfortable with it.
4: The 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 only thing that I got too is like it's one thing being called out on time because of time in a spring training game, when when it actually happens in a regular season game, being called out because of time and time and infringement, what's that going to look like? I mean, I I there's still you're still going to get you guys going to have to deal with some kind of crazy stuff, I believe at that point, especially if it happens in the ninth inning, especially if it's the last out of the game, which is probably going to happen at some point. There's there's a lot there's a lot there for you guys to have to absorb and actually take the heat from you're going to take the heat from it. I, I know that's going to happen and I know you guys have already discussed that, but I'm curious to see how that all plays out. I want to believe. And of course, with the good spring training, which is going on now, the adjustments are being made that people are going to react in season, uh, when these rules are implemented as they have during spring training. And I think that would be something that's going to be interesting to follow.
5: Yeah, no, I I agree. And, uh, you know, like I say, um, even even with violations now, mm-hmm. player kind of just smiles and he knows, and, and it isn't they don't know. And, and when when I've had uh, you know violations like uh, you know working the plate, and then had like a violation on a on a pitcher, and I, I'll kind of meet him when he walks off the field just to say, hey, I just want to make sure you understand. Do you understand why you were uh, you had the violation? And, and most of the time, they say yes, and, and I say the same thing to the coaches, and they say, no, no, they understand. It's just a matter of getting used to, mm-hmm. but um, the, the end result, I think it's much better for the game.
4: Tommy, before he gets back to this one point right there with Phil's talking about, See, th- to me, that's good umpiring. The conversation, um, the communication with them, I mean, the best umpires I've ever been around are those that you could have a real free and easy conversation about. So, you know, you're going to disagree. You're going to go back and forth, and and you're going to make your point. He's going to make his point, but... The guys that you're able to talk to and the guys that would do just exactly what Phil talked about, come over to make sure everybody understands. That's a difference maker right there uh, from a uh, dugout perspective as a manager, the player's perspective, the communication. Nobody talks about that. Everybody's worried about everything else. But that's the part to me out of all the things that an umpire could possibly do, whether judgment, balls and strikes on the bases, whatever. If you could communicate with this guy, you love having him on the field.
3: Yeah, that's a great point, Joe, and it it leads me to something. I I want our listeners to know that when Phil was talking about the clock, and I'm sure he's learned this, Phil, and you can correct me here if I'm wrong, but the umpires do have a pack on them that gives them a a buzzer or some kind of a jolt to know when the clock is running down and getting to those periods of violation. So you don't literally have to watch the clock. But, Phil, it's sort of like replay where you have to be literal with something when you have – these kind of parameters, uh, these numbers here, the clock, you know, the clock doesn't care if you're a superstar or a 26 guy on the team, right? You have to enforce the rules. But at the same time, I'm wondering, Phil, how much leeway you have where common sense comes into play. Whether you're in a big league ballpark now and the pitcher has trouble hearing the pitch comm signals, uh, whether the batter's got something in his eye, whether the wind all of a sudden, you know, turns up some dust in front of home plate. Uh, how much of that is you as the home plate umpire running a game? How much leeway do you
5: have um, when it comes to violations? Yeah, when it, if, if it's something legitimate like you just described, we have complete uh, control to be able to stop the clock and reset the clock. It's, it's when uh, we think that a player is trying to circumvent the rule. That's when we would disregard a request for time. And uh, not reset the clock. But um, yeah, I mean, common sense. Uh, if there's something that's going on, um, we, we can certainly reset the clock. And, and you know, the, the, the person who really is uh, like the uh, the FTC, right, the, the, the field time coordinator, uh, he or she is really the person who is uh, we have the control, you know, we have control over the game. But to have a good timer, that's that's really the key to the game. When that person knows when to start the clock, when to stop the clock, when to reset the clock, that that's you know on a much simpler level, I I equate it to um, a good ball boy. You know, a good ball boy is always looking at you, and when when you signal him that you know to bring out new baseballs, and and when you have a young kid that really is kind of uh, you know awestruck by being out there, and he's kind of looking around the stands, and you have to keep looking into the dugout or looking into that area to get a baseball, it makes the job more difficult. That's a minor thing compared to what we're talking about with the timer. So uh, the key is going to be how well these uh, field coordinators, uh, timers, uh, the FTCs, uh, how, how well they do their job. But we do have discretion.
3: You've got a lot on your plate. And, oh, by the way, then you have to call that 92-mile-an-hour slider on the black, whether it's a ball or a strike. So <laughs> the job, it's amazing how, how often these guys are right. I don't think people understand how good they are at what they do because the, the game gets faster and faster. Uh, but the human eye can only do so much. Uh, and, by the way, some of our listeners might be wondering, how do you become a major league umpire? Well, you've got to hear Phil's story. We'll be back with that
6: and switch therapist anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Book of Joe today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, hel com slash Book of Joe.
1: If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals.
7: Welcome
3: back to the Book of Joe podcast. Our guest is Major League umpire Phil Cuzzy. And Phil, the paths of the big leagues for players are many. I'm sure they are for umpires. Yours is, let's say, even more unique because you got a late start. Uh, Tell us about how you got this idea. I don't even want to call it a bug at that point, but even the idea of being a Major League umpire.
5: Well, you know, my, my first job out of college, I was a school teacher in Union, New Jersey. And, uh, and I loved it. I I enjoyed it. It was a, I was in a great school system and, um, I just had in my mind that I, I didn't want as much as I enjoyed it. I didn't want to be a teacher the rest of my life. And that's no knock on the profession. Uh, and I said, um, you know, I, 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 I was young. I was right out of school. I was, I was 21, 22 years old. And I said, I, you know, I don't want to always have to have a summer job. And so, um, you know, a friend of mine said, you know, you're, you're kind of personable and uh, you'd probably be good in sales. So I, I went into sales and, and I worked for this company out of Worcester, Massachusetts, and it was computer accessories uh, when computers were kind of just coming into the fold. And uh, I said, all right, this is, uh, you know, I want to make more money. And I, and I did. And I was. And I said, but, you know, there has to be something more exciting than, than closing an order. And I was at Yankee Stadium with my buddies one night. And for whatever the reason, I just started watching the umpires. I watched them rotate around the field. And, and uh, you know, something I just never, you know, who goes to a game and watches the umpires? But for some reason, I found myself just watching what they were doing. And I said, now that would be a great job. And so uh, one of my buddies sitting next to me says, you know, I see in the back of the sporting news, there's advertisements for, for the umpire schools. And uh, so I rode away. And uh, at the time, it was Harry Wendelstadt School and Joe Brinkman School. And uh, Joe Brinkman put a a brochure in the mail and sent it to me. And Harry wrote a a letter, just, you know, just a personalized letter. And I said, OK, I'm going to go there. And I said, well, how hard could this be? I've I've played baseball since Little League. And uh, I know the game of baseball. And once I got down to Daytona Beach and, and, you know, went onto the field, I realized I didn't know anything about baseball from an umpire's uh, perspective and, um, a real long story short, uh, you know, the, the school is offered for five weeks in January. And if you don't make it, then you have to, if, if you have, you know, aspirations to, to go back, you have to wait a full year. So in the meantime, you try to work as many games as you can, uh, high school, college, whatever you can do. And, uh, Longer story short, it took me four attempts at umpire school. Now Joe may be saying, "Well, I've seen an umpire, and I'm not surprised." <laughs> the four times we go through umpire school.
4: Never even thought that, Phil. <laughs>
5: but uh, you know, so so I, I did. Uh, Tom, you mentioned I did get in late, and I did, and things were going well, and I was progressing, and I, I got to AAA in in, a, in a, what four years, and and then. Uh, I was in AAA for three years and nothing was going on, until the day I was in Louisville and, unbeknownst to us, uh, Al Barlick was was in the stands. And we walked in after the game and and I had the plate that day. And Barlick said to me, uh, "Where have you been hiding?" And I said, "I've been here just waiting for you, Al." And he said, "Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna," and he was supervisor for the National League at the time, and. Uh, he said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have the National League take you to spring training. And for those that don't realize that that's the first step in an umpire's career towards the big leagues is you go through the minor leagues. And then and back then it was, you know, leagues were separated, American National League. And that, that's your first big step is being invited to, to major league spring training, as opposed to being assigned to a camp, a minor league camp. And whatever teams come in, that, that's who you umpire for. And, uh, that, so that was the first step. And then, uh, after I think it was, uh, three years, we were having expansion of Florida and Colorado. So that was going to mean four additional jobs for umpires, four new umpires would have to be hired, uh, coupled with a couple of retirements, there was going to be six jobs. And so, you know, leading up to that, um, you know, I, I, I thought I was in a pretty good position to, to, to be one of the six, and when I wasn't, then uh, the following season I, I was released, and I was devastated, and uh, wasn't sure what I was going to do, and and I was uh, I was encouraged by uh, by uh, the umpires' uh, union; uh, they were going to try to get my job back because they felt as though maybe I was released. Uh, you know, without real good cause, but every year guys are released, right? So um, it wasn't until I, it was three years later. I was working at a hotel in New Jersey. Uh, my sister was was a, a chief concierge there, and she said, "Listen, why don't you uh, come to work at the hotel? It's it's the holidays are coming, and we we need we need additional help." And I said, "I don't really want to be in the hotel business." And of course, my Italian sister made me feel guilty about it. So I I took the job (laughs) and real long story short, um, I was trying to get my job back. And uh, who walks into the hotel one night after the All-Star game in Philadelphia was Len Coleman, then National League president. Come on. And it was just everything just aligned because I had a a letter in my my pocket that I, I brought to the hotel. Um, that was written. I wrote it to Len Coleman, just asking for a meeting and hopefully to get my job back. And I brought it to the hotel for my sister to proofread. And he was in the hotel that day. And uh, I was able to meet him and give him my letter. And he said, I'll get back to you on this. And that's really how it, I, I got back into the game.
4: That resonates with me, buddy, too, because listen, I, I got kicked out too. I was As a player, uh, you're told your services are no longer needed. And then you just try to get back in the game somehow. I was ready to give up on my opportunities. I was going to go to Italy and play. I had a chance to go play in Italy in um, 1980, 81, and uh, but then all of a sudden, Larry Himes uh, comes back and offers me an opportunity to go back as a minor league manager, scout, and coach with the Angels. Um, but during this time, I mean, I'm working in a home for juvenile delinquents. I'm working. I'm, I'm making hoagies. You know, I'm delivering hoagies for third base luncheonette. I'm mopping the floors at the end of the day. You do anything it takes. And then you're like, just like you, you're, you're staying in touch and you're, I didn't have a letter in my pocket, but I constantly kept uh, bothering people that I knew because I wanted back in the game. So I I, I read all this uh, before as you're recounting it. I was really impressed with all that uh, because these are the kind of things people don't know, understand. They see, everybody sees finished products. They'll see you on the field being a major league umpire, part, but they don't know how you got there. And I, I love that. I love the fact you didn't quit. Uh, the fact that I guess you were bartenders, of course, you're a substitute teacher. Uh, I think it's an awesome story. And it indicates how much of a fighter that you are, that you were released, that you returned. And, um, I really believe we need to call Hollywood on this one. This is, this is going to be better than Moneyball if they put it on the big screen. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I really do. I'm serious. I'm serious. I
5: love it. Well, I appreciate it.
3: I I just love that. That Len Coleman story. Yeah. The dude is writing a letter to Len Coleman to get back into the game.
5: And who shows
3: up at the hotel but Len Coleman? Man, I hope you bought a lottery ticket that day too, Phil. But, you know, Joe mentioned school teacher, bartender, salesman. Obviously, this is, you found your calling being an umpire. So after all these
5: years, Phil, what is it about being an umpire that you love the most? I mean, there's many things, you know, the camaraderie of, of being around the guys. I've been blessed with great partners since the minor leagues, But it's really just being a part of the game. You know, it was was a game, as I'm sure, you know, both of you guys with with your love as as a kid and just to be a not only just a part of the game, but I mean, really being the the gatekeeper of the game. I I mean, you know, the the integrity of the game starts with us and and I'm proud of that. I I mean, you know, as Joe mentioned before, you know, we disagree with players and Players always think that that if, if you if you call them out on strikes that that you did it on purpose and you know I, I had Tory Hunter not talk to me for a year I, I called him out on a strike and he and it was right down the middle and and he thought that I was I was trying to screw him and uh, <laughs> and a year later he came up to me and said you know I know it wasn't the case and and uh, you know and I said okay yeah, of course not but you know I, I always said and it's different now with replay but when a player gets mad that you call them out on a pitch that wasn't a strike or you you miss a play on the bases, And of course, now replay fixes all that, but uh, you still don't want to miss them, but they're angry and a manager's angry, but I can promise you that you're not more angry than I am if, if I miss a play. And I'm speaking for my colleagues as well, but um, it, it's just a, it's just an awesome position to be in. And I, I love my job and, and, you know, people say, you know, how much longer are you going to do it? And and I don't know, because uh, I, I just, you know, if I didn't enjoy it, if, if I if I dreaded, you know, having to be at the airport every three days, I could pack it in at any time. But um, as long as I still enjoy it, it's just I just I just love the game. I love being around it. I love being around the guys and, you know, walking on the field, uh, you know, start the game. I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're relieved and happy when we walk off the field, but but. My favorite part of the day is walking onto the field, and I just love that. That is
4: awesome. Well said. I guess I was just curious because I've been around a little bit now, too, and been around a lot of really good umpires, I believe, and I know you have uh, uh, any particular umpire for you that's had the greatest influence on your career, somebody that you might uh, turn to, somebody that gave you great advice, kind of a mentor, because I'm, I'm curious. I'm mean, going to have all these guys that I think I know that I believe are really good at it. I'm just curious from your perspective who you got.
5: You know, my, one of my first mentors was, was Frank Pulley. Okay. And, uh, and like I said, I, I, I've been blessed to be with great crew chiefs over, over the years. And, and I, I always said that I think that, that a, a good crew chief, a strong crew chief, really, especially in the early years of, of an umpire's career, really shapes, you know, who he is and, and, and how he goes about his business on the field. But Jerry Crawford certainly I've worked with Jerry for many years and um, love Jerry Jerry was a was a great mentor. Um, Joe West yep. w- was a great mentor you know if 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 I had a, a a situation, Joe was the great guy to call to for positioning on the field and and uh, Richie Garcia, another guy great with with positioning um, you know if I miss a play. Uh, you know, and people don't understand, you know, even with replay, people say like people think, well, replay. All right. So the, the mistake is being fixed. Yes, that that is the great part about replay. But it doesn't. We still beat ourselves up about missing a play. Mm-hmm. And when I miss a play, you know, I, I'll look I'll look at the film and I'll say you may know why. Sometimes you just miss it because you miss it. But sometimes you're moving or sometimes you're out of position or sometimes you may be blocked by a by a, a fielder. Frank Pulley used to say. Show me where the where the play is going to happen, and I'll tell you where to stand. But it doesn't always happen that way. Throw isn't always where it's supposed to be, and you have to make an adjustment. But I'll look at it, and 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 Richie Garcia was a great guy. Joe West was a great guy for positioning. I say here, look at this, look at the, look at my play, and, and tell me what you think. Well, I think you're too close to the player, or, or you know, I think if you had two steps over, you moved, and if you stayed where you were, that was that was the place to uh, that, that you would have probably seen that play better. So. There were, there were many guys, you know, over the years. I worked with Bruce Fremming. I worked with Eddie Montague, and everyone has had a different technique and, and and you kind of pick and choose what what works best for you.
4: Sure. Your concept, your concept about the strong crew chief. I mean, that's almost like having a good manager, I guess, within a group. Um, um, I just never thought of it in those terms. Um, When you say strong crew chief, what kind of attributes do you get from this guy? Uh, what 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 makes uh, a, an umpire a really uh, a strong crew chief?
5: I think a, a strong crew chief he 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 doesn't try to do too much. You know, I, I've seen like young crew chiefs that feel as though their job is to be in the middle of everything, and I think a strong crew chief, like like I said, I worked with Jerry uh, Crawford for a lot of years. He, he would let he would let you work, and he would be there if you needed him. But he was going to see how you reacted to it. And then he would he would tell you afterwards. He said, listen, you know, what you did was 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 right. But and he might, you know, throw something in. But um, I I think a good crew chief, a strong crew chief lets his crew work and do their thing and uh, and then have discussions afterwards if, if something wasn't quite right. And as a learning experience, take advantage of the learning experiences because every day we learn something. We can learn something new. Uh, sometimes we watch uh, other guys and, and uh, learn what not to do. And you know both are equally uh, valuable.
4: You're describing a manager and his coaching staff pretty well, right there. It's it's really interchangeable stuff. You know, just being a good leader is being a good leader. And you're talking about having someone's back. You're giving. You're empowering another umpire umpires to do their job you're there watching uh, when it goes sideways you're there to pick them up or give them advice and also when they do a great job you want to let them know that too that's that's where your confidence level really rises but it's no different it's no different than us in a dugout in a clubhouse uh, from a manager perspective to the to the coaching staff and even to the players it's just to be there for them uh when they need you otherwise i really thought it's always wise to stay out of the way and i love the concept of doing simple better i just talked you just said that i mean they want to keep it simplified I uh, I mean that's that's really a great explanation, Phil. I like that a lot, and um, it, there's a lot of parallels to be drawn.
5: Yeah, you know, I, I always thought that that um, you know a good manager or a good coach is is a a, a good um, source for information. It, you know, if, if you can, if you do trust that person, you know, just to ask. You know, like you know, I, I've I, I've asked uh, managers, or I've asked uh, players. I, I don't care about the name, but just tell me. Why you think an umpire? You know, I, I forget who it was. I went up to and I said, uh, "Listen, you know, you're you're a good guy. I see you get along pretty much with everybody." I said, um, "I don't want to name, but just tell me if, if there's if there's an umpire that you don't like or don't get along with, and, and tell me what the reason is." And um, and the player said, "Well, you know, uh, I, I really like most of the guys. I think that I watch them. I, you know, they seem to work hard. But uh, you know, everyone makes mistakes, but." I saw this one umpire, he was working home plate, and it was on a Sunday, and um, he, he started tapping his, his wrist before the pitch, and I said, this guy just wants to call pitches and, and get out of there to catch the flight on Sunday on a getaway day, and I said, well, let me ask you, were, 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 there, were there runners on base? And he said, well, yeah, I think there was, and I said, well, you know, that's our signal for a time play, <laughs> And uh, uh, you know, and, and he said... Oh, yeah, I forgot, I didn't think about that. Oh, yeah, then there's nobody that's interesting that I don't like. So he was using the signal that we have for a potential time play that we would give with the at bat uh, for thinking that the guy just wanted to get out of there. <laughs> so, but I do think that a, a manager or coach uh, can be a, a great tool j- just hearing from the other perspective, you know. And I've asked the manager that question, He said, you know, and, and, I, and I know, especially some of the old school guys. They know you're going to make a mistake, but if they see you working hard and they see you working at your, at your job, not that they're not going to get mad, but they're going to give you a little bit more leeway because they know that you're human, but uh, as opposed to um, somebody who might not be working as hard or uh, had a manager to get, give me an answer to that question said, I don't like when I see an umpire bait my players. That, that's reasonable. That's fair. That's fair.
4: All great points. All great points. Hey,
5: we are going to start our own pitch timer and
3: take a quick break and come right back with Phil Cuzzy, wrap things up with Phil. And I want to ask him about a specific rule that is not even in the rule book, which causes a lot of confusion. Back in the flash.
1: If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick
3: Here we go. Three, two, one. Hey, welcome back to the Book of Joe podcast with Phil Coussey. Uh, Phil, when you were talking about positioning, it brought me back. I actually umpired a spring training game. They would not let me do the plate, but I did do three innings each at first, second, and third. And I went through a basic training, if you will, a few days with some of the umpires. And boy, did they stress the importance of positioning. And I'll never forget the kind of the imagery was like you're a tripod a camera on a tripod get yourself set get your eyes set you don't want your head moving when you're making that call whereas i think in most times in the NFL the NBA those guys are moving all the time makes it a lot harder you know so i never forgot that imagery but i also thought about when you're on the baselines either first or third base the checked swing this causes so much agita with fans and players and Here's the trick. I don't know if you use this, Phil, but this is what I was taught. As the first or third base umpire, you are on the chalk line, and that's sort of your guideline. You're looking down that line, and if you see the barrel of the bat cross that line, it's a good rule of thumb, not a, an absolute rule, but a good rule of thumb to call swing or not. So, give me your window in terms of making that call, which happens so fast and it's so hard to call. And Usually somebody is going to be angry when someone checks whether it's a swing or not.
5: Check swings are very difficult because, you know, the guys are so strong now. And um, any time that I've, I've had trouble as a plate umpire uh, calling a check swing, if, 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 I, if, I, if I called it when the hitter did not go, I found because I called it too quick. And and that that goes to any any base as well. You know, it, it's you know the old umpire saying it, it, it ain't nothing till I call it. But um, timing is is so important. But to your point, you know, being a, a first or third base umpire, um, you know, there are a lot of things that you hear, like the the, the chalk line. Did did he break uh, the the plane of of, of the uh, of the plate? Um, but you know, I I kind of go by the the actual rule book uh, definition, which does, did he make an attempt to, to swing? And, you know, that that that's so broad and it can be interpreted so many different ways. But um, but the check swings are tough. And, you know, when when it's a, a, a right-handed hitter, if I'm working first base, every hitter looks like they go. The backside looks like they go. And, Joe, you may... You may remember this. It was before me, mm-hmm. but they, I heard that they experimented one year with the opposite guy calling the check swing. And it looks like everyone goes, and so I think they stopped doing it because there were too many that were called. But uh, I just go by legitimately the, do I think he made an attempt and, and how far. But, again, it's hard because the guys are so strong that they could look like they're taking a home run swing and they're strong enough to stop the bat. Yeah. And so that's where the timing comes in.
4: This is one area I thought, because uh, I agree with you and Tommy, this, as, a, as a manager, this causes me more, and I think I've gotten kicked out more on this one uh, particular play than any. Uh, this is where I like to see technology take over. This is one area that I don't think we've really experimented enough with, meaning um, why, why can't we not embed a chip in the head of every bat and somehow set it up from the side? There's got to be a, a line of demarcation from the side that if a bat passes a certain area, the head of the bat passes a certain area, that it's easily called a strike. I would like to see a little bit more experimentation or thought put into that. And I thought that this, of all the different plays, this is the most ambiguous, the one that creates the most, I think somebody just said, ajina. Uh and, and I know from a manager's perspective, it does. It does. It's tough. I got kicked out of playoff games with this with uh, uh, Wolfie down in Tampa Bay one year. And, I, you know, I just went nuts. It, was a, you know, it gets to be a big moment and you and you just go crazy. So I, I would. I, I think there might be something in there um, if we could just research this a little bit more. Because this is one of those things that, I mean, I, I think you guys, like we're talking about, it's incredible how often you people are correct. It's incredible how often you guys are on the money. It is. And this one here, it's hard to ask you to be on the money, like you're saying. And the other thing is if a p- hitter hits a, a, a night game, a hitter has a black bat or dark bat, isn't it more difficult to see from a distance? Than a regular like back in the day they were all light colored bats or the flame tempered bats. You could see them when the when hitters using a black bat at night from the side, it's hard to see where the end of that bat is. So there's other things that I think need to be researched with this, something simple. And um I think it would it would. It would uh, from from a manager's perspective, uh, knowing that this, like you could review a play at first base, the the fact that this is uh, more definitive, whether you win or not, I would really appreciate that from the dugout.
5: Yeah, I haven't heard anything talked about that, but certainly you would think with technology, something like that could, uh, the the only, the the best part about that for me is that if they ever come to that, I'll be retired and at the Jersey Shore.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Which is not a bad gig, brother. That's not a bad gig.
5: Hey, uh, Phil,
3: before we get out of here, we we do have a a job for you, an assignment. Uh, It's a little bit easier than working the plate. Uh, It's picking a number between one and 368. This is our book, The Book of Joe, and this is a reading from The Book of Joe. You pick a number, and we'll find something there, I guarantee you, no matter what number you pick, of interest, that Joe will grab a book and and read a passage from that page. So it's your call, Mr. Umpire.
5: Okay, I'll say 29. Rod Carew. Carew. 29. Okay, woof! this is great.
3: Is there a reason for that, Phil? Got a, a special
5: number for you? Because your number on the field is 10, correct? You know, after I said 29, I said I should have said my number, but at 29, uh, my birthday's 29.
4: You know, and this this so dovetails into <laughs> our guest. This is so good. Um, Philip uh, of Italian ancestry, correct? Correct. I read him, of course. So, okay, Moschetti, my man, Baldy Muschetti from Boulder, Colorado. Muschetti had heard about Madden from Ralph DeLulo. Did you ever know Ralph, an East Coast scout back in the day at all? No, great, great. I mean, like, uh, iconic. From Capricotta, Italy, a village in the mountains east of Rome, not far from Abruzzo, where Madden's grandfather was born, based on DeLulu's recommendations, Muschietti invited Madden to play that summer with the Collegians. Quite frankly, i never heard of them before that. Uh, I said, when you're on the East Coast doing your thing, you don't get a lot of that. But, yeah, I'll take it. Let's go. And this is where I started playing against guys from Texas, Oklahoma, Southern California, Miami, the Florida schools, Michigan, Arizona State, everywhere. Now I was out in the real world, man, the real baseball world. That was like the, uh, that moment when I got to go out there and play in Boulder. It was 1975. That, that changed everything. That changed my trajectory completely. You know, you're playing on the East Coast, and you know what it's like. You're here. You know, you're know, you playing from the dudes. From, I was playing guys Jersey, Pennsylvania, New York. All that's the Atlantic Collegiate Baseball League. And Lafayette College, they so play in all these schools. And you just don't know. You don't know, can I compete with the guys from the rest of the country? So I go to Boulder. The whole team, the whole team is from everywhere uh, the West Coast. And after like two weeks, I felt, uh, I belong here. I can do this. I'm as good as these guys. So that was like really impactful for me. But Baldy Muschetti, man, you would have loved Baldy and his mom, Gentile. I mean, uh, I used to live in their house. Uh, tremendous cook. Uh, Baldy was a trip, man. And that was the most uh, influential year career-wise, path-wise. For me, it was 1975 in Boulder.
5: Aside from the the Italian name, the, the, what stuck out with me about that passage is, uh, you said Abruzzi. My, my father's side of the family is from Abruzzi.
4: And I have ties there. A town called Sant Agapido. It's up in the mountains. It's in that area, Chieti, I think, in Abruzzo. Uh, that's one thing I got to get back. I got to get back there and just do the backpack thing, travel around, take my time. Uh, have time stand still and I'm going to do it, man. I'm going to do it, but that's cool, man. Kind of the same area. Love it.
5: Yeah. Love it. Pescara Abruzzi was where my father's family was from.
4: Dude, I'm serious, man. I know those, all that's, I got to research that area. I'm hearing the same things from my uh, family. So we're on the same Italian page right here. Wow.
3: Well, Phil, this has been a blast. I mean, the stories are just unique, one of a kind. Hopefully our listeners enjoyed it. And And I know they'll really enjoy this baseball season. I keep telling people I'm so excited about this year. We've seen glimpses of it in spring training where the games move so much faster. The pace is so much better. I think baseball is looking at a little renaissance here. And and it's good to hear the umpires are really a a very big part of it. So next time you watch a game, folks, thank your umpire. (laughs) Thank you, Phil. Thank you, guys. I enjoyed it.
4: Thanks, Phil. Say hi to the boys for me, too, please. I'd appreciate that. Will do. Great to see you, man. Great to see you. Thank you.
3: Well, Joe, that was really, really interesting. And we got through the whole episode without you having an argument with
4: Phil. So congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, man. I, I, w- I wanted to ask one more question. I didn't want to prolong it, though. Just about the electronic strike zone with the scuttlebutt is among the umpires. Uh, but he covered so many different topics. I did not want to uh, uh, prolong it. But I just, you know, when it comes to that, when we get to that point, if in fact it does happen... It's always about the unintended consequences and the, the optics with all that. And I just was uh, curious about his concerns. So maybe we'll get him on another time and talk about that. But otherwise, I thought he did a wonderful job of explaining the psyche of the umpire, what they go through daily, the adjustments having to be made, uh, all this stuff that they have to be vigilant about is crazy. And we keep adding more layers to it.
3: Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the electronic strike zone because, uh, you know, it's coming. There's no doubt about that. The technology is just too good. They need to redefine what the strike zone is. But I am in favor of sort of a transitional system, not a full-on robo strike zone, but the challenge system that's been used in the minor leagues, where the players get three challenges per game, similar to Hawkeye in tennis. And it's already been used. It happens very quickly. It's over with in three seconds. They show the video on the board of whether the pitch is in the zone or not. Um... And it doesn't come from the dugout. This is if you're in the box, you know, and you think the umpire missed the call, you can challenge it. But remember, you only have three. So there's some strategy to it as well. And here's what's interesting, Joe. When they've tried this out in the minor leagues, and again, you only have three. So you're going to wait for really key moments in the game to challenge a pitch, whether you think the umpire missed the call or not. And more times than not, the umpire was correct. Right. How about that? That's how good these guys are. But I do like the idea you've got that in your pocket because you don't want a game to end or be decided sure. on an obvious blown call. That's why we have replay on the bases. I would not go full-on robo-strike zone, but I do like the challenge system.
4: I've heard this, too, that I kind of like um, put the system in place, but not, necessarily to, not to call every pitch, but to correct the umpires per pitch. In other words, the umpires got like a little – Whatever, like the little AirPod, AirPod in his ear, and after the pitch is thrown and it's called, he gets an affirmation that it was right or it was wrong, like it was off a little bit, right. And I think uh, I would think that that's going to permit an umpire to make uh, kind of micro adjustments during the game, so that if he's really just a little bit off on a particular pitch, he could make the adjustment without having to go through the histrionics of be uh, getting so uh, mechanical with the game, so technical with the game. That you're really eliminating the human element. I, I thought that was a pretty good uh, thought. Just to, it's in the Good call. Uh, you might want to reconsider that. It might have been an inch outside. Whatever that might be, but um, I'd be I'd be fascinated if that could be incorporated somehow.
3: That's a good idea. As you know, they do get a digital report card after games, but why not have it in the course of the game? Sure. Um, so it's a, it's definitely worth exploring. Yeah.
4: In game correction, man, it's um you, you're going to get a pitch. You know, you the guy may alter the zone. I mean, if how adamant and how much he believes that you're a, a straight up guy as a catcher, the catcher that's always complaining, always crying, always wants everything, he's not going to get that. But if you have a reputation of uh, if the pitch is off the plate, I always tell umpires, "Good call, it's, it's out, it's out." When you start being that honest with an umpire about good and bad pitches. Uh, and you work together that way, eventually you're going to get yourself a pretty good strike zone.
3: I like it. Hey, by the way, Joe, we are coming up very close now to opening day baseball 2023. So Mm -hmm. how about our next podcast? We do our own version of a baseball preview show. We'll talk about what we look forward to, maybe what is not so good, and maybe a few opening day stories of yours. How about that?
4: That's cool, man. Yes, I'm in. All right. I'll be there too, by the way.
3: Uh, <laughs> I need you. I
4: need you badly. Yes, absolutely.
3: <laughs> <laughs> As we wrap this one up, you got something to take us out.
4: Yeah, it's kind of like I think it dovetails into all of this, and it comes from Nelson Mandela. Real quick, Kurt, but it's right to the point. It always seems impossible until it's done. You know, you get you get to these situations, uh, this this mountain, this hill in front of you. God, how am I going to do all that stuff? And then when it's done, damn, it wasn't impossible. I I love that by Mr. Mandela.
3: I like that. And if I can just piggyback on that. Sure. A terrific book. If you like writing, are a writer, just interested in writing, Anne Lamott, Bird by Bird is the name of the book. And along those lines, what you just mentioned with the great Nelson Mandela, she had an assignment at an early age to paint this whole genus of birds. She's like, how am I going to do all these birds? I just can't do it. And the best advice she got was, you know how you do it? You do it bird by bird. That's right. And that's how you get big things done, little by little. Don't try to take a big bite. Amen. And with that, we're going to say goodbye. We'll see you next time on the Book of Joe podcast.
4: Thanks, Tommy. Nice going.
3: The Book of Joe podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators
0: of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast.